Well, good morning again. So good to be here. Been looking forward to this time spending with you. I want to begin with just a little insight to my life, too. I'm a talker. Uh, My wife will attest to that. And I could probably talk with about anybody. And one morning, many, many years ago, before we had kids even, we received a phone call. Uh, It was like 6 o'clock on a Saturday morning. And I thought I recognized the voice on the other end of the line. And I ended up talking to this gal for, this is an older gal, for about 30 minutes. Until she said something like this. Well, I just snuck downstairs in your sister's house and I'm looking out the kitchen window over the desert. And I'm going, my sister lives in Iowa. I don't know who this person is. <laughs> And she kept talking. (laughs) I said, ma'am, 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 I'm not who you think I am. She goes, well, who are you? I said, I'm not going to tell you. I I don't know. (laughs) She goes, well, this has been such a wonderful conversation. Can I have your address? I want to write to you. I'm going, oh, man. I said, no, I think we better say goodbye now. We carried on for 30 minutes. Ah. And and I tell you that story because we carried on this conversation that was not intended for me, and it really meant nothing. (laughs) Wow. Unlike Jude's letter, by the way, when we read of this this short little letter of Jude, it was a well-intentioned letter for those that he was writing to at the time, but Jude's letter is timely today. And not only to, it wasn't just written to an individual, you know, you got Paul writing to Timothy, you got writing to Titus. The letter of Jude is written to believers, to the church, and I believe it's written written to the church of all ages with an intention and a purpose. And it's not like carrying on a conversation of, you know, have you ever gotten a text from somebody and you're looking and going, who is it? Same thing. And then you find out they've just punched in one number wrong and you're looking at this conversation. You have no idea. Not intended for you. Oh, this letter is intended for you. I know you're in a journey right now, Faith, as you are searching for a pastor. And I know that you can become discouraged in those times and you can wonder what's going on and all of that. Well, Carolyn and I are in a journey as well as uh, we have just concluded a ministry, but... We are launching into a ministry with the Friends of Israel, and it's a journey of faith that we've never been on before. And uh, so these words, as I prepared a series of messages from this uh, at our church in Olympia, spoke to my heart well about my role. What am I supposed to be doing just as part of the body of Christ? So I want to share that with you this morning as a word of encouragement and a challenge to you in this journey and in this life from Jude's timely letter to those at the time as well as to us today. Now, Jude was writing. He was a brother of James, which made him also a half-brother of the Lord Jesus Christ. Obviously, James and the other siblings, including Jude, did not believe who Jesus was until after the resurrection. But here we find Jude writing to the church, to the believers, and really reflective of Peter's second letter that he wrote. We're going to find a lot of parallels in that. But what Peter was writing in his first two letters were 
foretelling of what was going to be happening, some oppression and the persecution as well as the falling away. And Jude seems to be writing because that has, been, has begun. And so Jude's words are to those believers about the things that were happening, the oppression, the persecution, the false teachers that were beginning to invade the church. So they're very timely for us as well today. Uh, there were a lot of different beliefs that were being encouraged at that time, people that had wormed their way into the church. First century church, and he probably wrote this in 68, 67 AD, and so the church was not very old, and it was already being infiltrated by those that were false teachers. But his words were an encouragement and, uh, to them, and I pray for not only my own life, but for you as well, to represent an encouragement and a challenge if we believe them or not. And the Lord intended by the Spirit of God, who is the author of the Word, speaking through Jude to the church. Like I said, I understand you're, you're looking for a lead pastor. And that journey has been, what, about a year so far since uh, Pastor Dave uh, moved on. And by the way, I've known Dave and Sue for many, many years. I greatly appreciate their ministry with us with the BNN but I'm grateful for his ministry here, too. It's very clear that God has used him greatly here. But in the meantime, when things don't always go right and you wonder what's going to happen, it's easy to lose heart, isn't it? It's easy to become distracted by things and questions come up and you could become discouraged. Well, Jude's letter was written to encourage, to build up some believers. Let's go to the text this morning. And first of all, look in the first couple of verses. Jude reminds them of their spiritual DNA. So let's read this. Jude, a bondservant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are the called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ, may mercy and peace and love be multiplied to you. Let's pause and pray. Father, I thank you for your holy and precious word given through these men that put the pen to the paper, if you will, and recorded it. And I'm thankful that you have preserved your word. Grateful for the power of your word that speaks to our heart, to the hearts of all ages. And I pray this morning as we open the word together that your spirit would work in our hearts as we receive it, as I share it, to bear fruit for your honor and your glory for eternity. I thank you for these dear people, and I pray for them in their journey right now as they wait upon you, and I pray that these words from Jude would be an encouragement to their hearts as well. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, sometimes we need to remember something, and our DNA, our spiritual DNA, you know, on like the Ancestry.com kind of stuff, you can now get your DNA tested to find out who you're related to in the past, and what good does that do you? I guess somebody found out they were related to George Washington. Well, good. I don't know how they got George Washington's DNA, but I don't know. But DNA is an important thing today, isn't it? It gives markers for health. DNA is used in law enforcement and such. We need to remember our spiritual DNA. See, we're all related. We are brothers and sisters in Christ, part of this great family of God, whether it's Olympia, whether it's Ferndale, whether it's all around the world, we share something and we have a DNA. 
And we need to remember that. And he begins by reminding them of whose they are. Not just who they were, but whose they were, who they belonged to. We find that here, and he says, to those who are the called. We find here there are three very profound words, and they are very precious truths for the believer. The called. Now, this isn't the... Anybody here from the South, like Texas? Anybody? All right, so when you called people to come, what did you say? Y'all come! But that's kind of a general thing. Y'all come! Well, this isn't general like, you know, y'all come at all. We notice here in this, the called and the word the before called makes it a very specific calling. In fact, it is a word that means specific and purposeful being called to something. You could say, y'all come to dinner. But really, it's not like just, well, everybody's saying now, I'm talking to you, church, to you called out believers, those who have been saved and redeemed by the precious blood of Christ. You're part of the body, the called. Paul says something similar in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. If you would turn over to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, he reminds us, of this precious calling of every believer, everybody in the body of Christ. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 13 to 15. Another group of believers that were in need of encouragement, by the way, in view of what was going on in the times. Paul writes to the church of Thessalonica, But we should always give thanks to God for you, brethren, beloved by the Lord, because God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and faith in the truth. It was for this he called you through our gospel that you may gain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So then, brethren, stand firm and hold to the traditions which you were taught, whether by word of mouth or by a letter from us. He was reminding them, you are uniquely chosen, you are uniquely called, And that calling had a purpose, and that was for sanctification. To walk in faith, in believing, because you're loved of God. This is a wonderful thought here. And to remember our spiritual DNA is to remember to whom we belong. To Christ. To Christ. You are the called. Now, being called, do you remember recess? You get all lined up, and there's two people, and they get to choose teams. Were you one of the first ones chosen, or... The last one, and neither one wanted you because you couldn't hit the ball or you couldn't make a basket, and you're sitting there like, they're going, okay, I'll take Paul. All right, whatever, and you go, okay, whatever. You you know, this is so unlike that. You're called, but it's not because of your ability, not because of your wonderful personality or anything like that at all. But you're called according to God's wonderful, specific, unique purpose. The called. Now, keep your finger in 2 Thessalonians as we go back to the text of Jude. Because there's a second point. And he says, not only are you the called, but here's this other incredible truth. He says, to those who are the called, beloved in God the Father. Now, this word beloved is a unique word. We know it, it's, the root word is agape. And agape means this unconditional kind of love. 
It is unending, it's unselfish, and that kind of love is always aimed for the person's best. So God loves us, and the only way we can love that way is through God, because that is how he loves. But here's this wonderful thing about the word. This beloved is a verb, and it's in what they call the perfect tense. In other words, it means it's already completed. Past action, already complete, sufficient in every way. Nothing needs to be added to it, but it has a continuing result in your life. You were called and you are loved completely, sufficiently in him. And that being beloved doesn't end like, okay, you were loved back there. But it continues and its effect continues in our life. And Jude was writing these timely words and reminding them, oh, you're the called, unique, specific, for a point, for a purpose in God. But you're also beloved in God, continuously loved by God. Now, go back to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, and we find verse 16 and 17, and Paul addresses this. Now, may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who has what? Loved us and given us eternal comfort and good hope by grace. Comfort and strengthen your hearts in every good work and deed. Brother and sister in Christ, dearly beloved... You are called, you are the church, and you're beloved by God from day one and continuing on through eternity. God will never stop loving you. His love is never interrupted by, oh, Paul, you blew it again. Okay, okay, I'm going to give you a little time here to figure this one out, but I'm going to put my love on hold for you. No, there's nothing true about that at all. Our God who never slumbers or sleeps. Our God whose character is never diminished by what we do or don't do. And his love is not conditioned on our response at all. You are loved continuously by God's great love. Oh my, what a wonderful, precious thought. Because there are times in our life, don't you feel personally abandoned by people? Betrayed by friends? Hmm, discouraged? Unloved, even by God. Have you gone through that before? Those times of life that you feel like God doesn't hear. You're crying out to God and you're just not getting an answer and you feel like God's left you out there. And you could even begin to ask God, don't you love me? Oh, these believers that Jude was writing to, They were being infiltrated by false teachers, and there was confusion resulting in that, and there was oppression coming on the church, and Jude said, hey, you're the called. You are beloved. Don't forget that. There's a third word we find in Jude here, and he says, not only are you called, and not only are you beloved, but you are also kept. I love this word. If you ever struggled with your eternal security... You know, I shared with you that Ralph led me to the Lord back when I was six or seven years old. And, of course, in my teenage years, I began to have these serious doubts about things. I was a freshman in high school, and I began to wonder, what if I'm, what I believe isn't even true? What if, what if? And the Spirit of God kept working in my life and through the counsel of others and through the Word of God, it became clear to me, no. That day, that morning, I remember the room where Ralph sat down with me and let... By the way, I know what he spoke on that day. You want to know what he spoke on? I don't really know your message, Ralph, the whole of it. 
I just remember one topic that you touched on, hell. Oh, my. I sat in that pew, and it scared me to think that I would die and spend eternity in hell. And that troubled me through the whole service until I sat down with Ralph, and he took me through the whole gospel. And we prayed, and I prayed to receive Christ as my Savior. What a glorious day. And from that day on, even though there were wanderings of my faith and wondering, and ah, you know, even though I didn't fully grasp it at that young age, God worked in my heart through the years. And I'm reminded here, the word kept means guarded like a prisoner. You are secured. Nothing can break in. You can't break out. You are kept. And again, perfect tense, which means, and this is a verb, perfect tense, past completed action with abiding results that continue on. So when I came to faith in Christ, when you came to faith in Christ, you are now kept from that point on and continuing. But there's another part of this word that is wonderful. It's in the sense that you are the receiver of the action of being kept. You can't keep yourself. It's not a word that says you're doing the action. This is God's action on your behalf. Therefore, you cannot do anything to lose yourself. You can't unkeep yourself. You are kept. You are guarded. And, that ex- and that's exactly what Peter said in 1 Peter chapter 1. And I love these verses as well. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 to 5. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who, according to his great mercy, has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you who are protected by the power of God through faith. Uh, So God is at work. God is doing that. You are protected, you are kept, you're guarded for life, for eternity by God's great power. And you're the receiver of that action. What a wonderful thought. So Jude opens his short little letter to those believers and he reminds them, you, church, are called to a specific purpose by a God who has a plan for you and for his church for eternity, for his purpose that unfolds. You're called. You are beloved, and there's not a moment that you're not, and you are kept. And there's not a moment that you are not kept by God's great power. Well, those are great words to remember. Called, beloved, kept. That's great stuff. I could stop right here, and that would be enough to carry you through the day and through the week and for the rest of our life, wouldn't it? But Jude didn't stop with that. Because he knows what he has to share next, they will need to remember whose they are, to whom they belong for this next portion. And this next portion is about remaining steadfast. Remaining steadfast, regardless of what's happening, whatever's coming along in life, to remain absolutely steadfast. Warren Wearsby said, the Christian life is a battleground, not a playground. It's a battleground not a playground. But it seems like, you know, in American Christianity, the whole focus seems to be enjoy life now. Make life comfortable now. 
Enjoy it. You need good health. You need the latest this for relaxation and comfort. And oh my, when you retire, you want to be able to retire at the same level of income as you had here. So you can go have fun and on and on. And we seem to think that's our right, even as Christians. But we're reminded we have a, it's in a battle. It's not a playground. But we can get involved in skirmishes, can't we? Oh, my goodness. Parenting, that's a playground, isn't it? (laughs) Battleground. Yeah, we have seven kids. Wonderful kids. Oh, but there were battles. You know what that's like, don't you? But we can take up that battle. It can be consuming to us, thinking we have to be victorious and We can even spiritualize some of that way too much. Maybe it's a battle with weight or a battle with some addiction or maybe it's some social battle out there or something. And we can get all caught up in these things and we can spiritualize food or anything and go on and on. Oh, man, we can get caught up in battle, 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 battle and lose the war because there's a spiritual war that's going on right now, right? And Jude's addressing that to these believers and he's reminding them we're going to get to this here in just a moment, there was a king, King Pyrrhus of Epirus. He scored a major victory over the mighty Roman army in 280 BC. Actually, this king had scored several battles along the way, but the problem was it was at great cost to his army because of the loss of life. And though he scored battle after battle after battle, he ultimately lost the war. Because his focus was on this, and, and, and you got to win this, and you got to win this. And he lost sight of the bigger picture. Sometimes we can fight the battle but lose the war. And so we find here in Jude, if we go back to the text, in verse 3, Beloved, while I was making every effort to write you about our common salvation, I felt the necessity to write you appealing that you contend earnestly for the faith. Now, he started out, he wanted to write them an encouragement about their faith, the common salvation that we have. But obviously, the Spirit of God moved him to write that they would contend earnestly for the faith. That means blood, sweat, and tears kind of work. Because the Christian life is not playground, it's a battleground. And he says in verse 3, to contend for the faith. And you got to remember here as we look at these, this would be a series in itself, by the way, uh, and can't cover them all in depth, but one of the hints I want to share with you is don't forget contending earnestly for the faith is not just the job of a pastor, nor is it the job just of the elders and the leadership of a church. Jude was writing to the believers. That's your job too. And as I was preaching this in our church in Olympia, going through that, I was reminded, you know, so often it's easy to look at the leadership and say, they need to lead us. They need to fight the battle. We'll be behind them all the way. Woo, you go, pastor. <laughs> as you're looking for a pastor, don't forget that they, a pastor shepherds and leads, and your elders lead you. But it's all of our role to contend earnestly for the faith. That's our job. Every believer, young and old, contend earnestly for the faith because there's a spiritual war that's going on out there. 
Would you turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 10? Paul, again, reminds us of something very crucial in our walk with Christ. In 2 Corinthians chapter 10, we need to be prepared for this. There is a battle that goes on. Starting in verse 3, Paul says, For though we walk in the flesh... We do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. We are destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God. And we are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. And we are ready to punish all disobedience whenever your obedience is complete. Paul says, you know, <laughs> this battle in this life... There's a lot of little skirmishes that are happening along the way. Don't lose sight of the fact there's a greater war that's going on. It's spiritual. And we have an enemy who is very adept at manipulating and deceiving and and pulling out all the stops to discourage you individually, to discourage you as a body. In fact, if he can invade in some way Ferndale First Baptist Church with a spirit of doubt... And begin to plant here seeds of disunity and divide you while you don't have a pastor and and come up and raise up against one another or accuse or question and say, I'm out of here. Oh, he'd have some great victories. Don't lose sight of the greater battle, the war that goes on. And you know what? Sometimes we get very focused on what's right in front of us here and now, but we forget Eternity and what the war is all about. Folks, our enemy is incredible. Oh, not as incredible as God. Don't worry there. He is very adept in every way. The battle, the war is very real. You, brother and sister, contend earnestly for the faith. That means you need to know the Word of God. Don't just expect a pastor to give it to you. You need to be in the Word. You need to be allowing the Spirit of God to take that Word that's planted in your heart, that it would become, it would bear fruit because you are taking that, letting your heart be examined so that you then will learn to walk in obedience to the Word. You know, as a pastor, it's really easy for me to get up and share lots of words. I'm a man of many words sometimes. And I can preach. And I can share things with you. But you know what? The same message is for me. It's not that terrible advice, do as I say, not as I do. See, as a pastor, I also need to be allowing the Word of God to saturate my heart and my mind. That's what Colossians 3 is all about, isn't it? Uh, Setting your mind and heart on things above. Contend earnestly for the faith. But then he goes on there, and he says in verses 17 to 23 of Jude, um, and I've skipped over a portion. I can't go through a verse in Jude right now. But there's a series here of things when uh, he says, But you, beloved, ought to remember the words that were spoken beforehand by the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ, that they were saying to you, In the last time there will be mockers following after their own ungodly lusts. These are the ones who cause divisions, Worldly-minded, devoid of the Spirit, but you, beloved, there's that reminder, beloved, by the way, that love that continues on. And this, these words reflect what 
Peter wrote in his second letter as well. There will be mockers. There will be people who begin to question everything. Go back to the word. But he says here, not only do we contend earnestly for the faith, but down here uh, in verse 20, but you, beloved, building yourselves up on your most holy faith. Building yourselves up. That kind of reminds me of Ephesians chapter 4, where we're encouraged to build one another up. That means to edify, to strengthen, to feed one another. Again, let me give you a good reminder. It's not just the pastor's job, the shepherd's job to build you up. We do that together. How do we do that? How do we build one another up? Well, first of all, we understand, too, that we can speak God's word into one another's lives, can't we? But we have to be in the word ourselves, a word of encouragement. You look at a brother or sister who's struggling with something. You see a brother or sister in Christ who's caught up in a sin. Galatians 6 reminds us, oh, when you see a brother caught up in sin, restore them. We can speak God's word into a life for encouragement, appropriate words. Proverbs speaks of Words that are appropriate, words of silver in that way. We see that we can challenge one another. We can instruct each other. We can send a note. We can make a phone call. We can come alongside and serve for the sake of Christ in their life. Not so I can pat myself on the back. Not so I can feel like, oh, I did something today. But really so that in that person's life, Christ would be exalted. It's for the sake of Christ in my brother or sister's life so that they would grow in Christ. Isn't that glorious to see how God works in somebody's life? And maybe God uses you in somebody else's life for their growth and maturity. That's the role of the body, building yourselves up, looking for ways to serve, to teach. You don't have to be a teacher, but if you know the word, you can minister in someone's life in a very quiet way. Take somebody out for lunch or coffee. Encourage them in the word. Instruct them in the word because you love them and you love the Lord. It says here also, not only building yourselves up in the most holy faith, but he goes on to say that you are uh, praying in the Holy Spirit. Wow, now that this is a whole message by itself right there. What does that mean, praying in the Holy Spirit? I think really what we understand about that is that we are indwelt by the Holy Spirit, remembering that when we come to faith in Christ, God plants His Spirit within us permanently. And as we pray in the Spirit, we are then, according to what it says in Ephesians, to be filled with the Spirit means to be under the control of the Spirit. That is a word of submission. I am submitting to the absolute control of the Spirit in my life. To be controlled by the Spirit doesn't like volume, like I'm halfway filled up today or I'm three-fourths filled up. It means letting go of yourself so that the Spirit of God controls you. To pray in the Spirit, I think, reflects that. To be in that attitude of prayer, allowing the Spirit of God to lead you. But then he also says, keep yourselves in the love of God. Say, well, wait a minute. How do I keep myself in the love of God? Does that mean I can step out of the love of God? But wait, no. Remember verses 1 and 2 of Jude? It says, you're beloved. You cannot be unloved by God. You can't get unloved. You can't undo it. So this has to mean something else, doesn't it? 
In John chapter 15, Jesus' words to the disciples were just this. If you love me, keep my commandments. And he encourages, he says, abide in me and I in you. For without me, you can do nothing. And I really believe the sense of this, keeping yourself in the love of God, is to be abiding in that through your obedience. By your walking with him. In dependence upon the Holy Spirit. And then he also says to extend mercy. Uh, Excuse me, before we get to that mercy. He says, wait anxiously in Jude here. This is a great thought too. Keeping yourselves in the love of God and waiting anxiously for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to eternal life. You know what it's like when company's coming? Oh, now you moms know what this is like. Moms with their kids. So-and-so's coming. What do you want your kids to do? Clean up your room. (laughs) Just shut the door. (laughs) Whatever. We've had kids. Yeah, I remember that. I remember being a kid. Whatever. But you're waiting for somebody. You're anxiously, you're waiting for them to show up, right? And so you want to get the house ready. And you want to be prepared for when they get there. This word, waiting anxiously, it's waiting with a great sense of anticipation. Sitting on the edge of your seat. It's going to happen. It's just waiting for it. Complete with sound effects. When Paul wrote to the Thessalonians, he wanted them to not be ignorant of the fact. He didn't want them to think they'd miss the return of Christ. And so he reminded them of Christ's imminent return. They had not missed it. And here, Jude is reminding those believers, Christ is coming back. Live with expectation of that great hope that Christ is returning for his betrothed bride, the church. Live with anxious expectation he could return at any moment. John would write in his epistle that those that have such hope purify themselves as they wait for that return. I think it's 1 John chapter 3, verse 1. But go back to Titus chapter 2. Titus chapter 2, 11 to 14. What a great reminder here. And I think there's a, a, a great reason to be reminded about being anxious for his return. Notice what he says here, Titus chapter 2, 11 to 14. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires, to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for, and there's that sense of anxious expectation, for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus, who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed, and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. He reminds them, or Paul was writing to Titus, reminding him, this is what you're to teach, by the way, that you've been saved gloriously. This is why Christ came. The grace of God appeared, and he's coming again. Looking for, anxiously expecting, what does it say here? The appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus. Oh, brother and sister in Christ, you live in this life, in this present age, and Paul says this is how you're supposed to live in the meantime, but don't lose sight of eternity. Today, 
a lot of teaching about the second coming of Christ and the prophecies and end times, people have kind of shoved it aside because there's so much confusion about it. And pastors don't want to preach it anymore because too many people have varying opinions. I think there's, that's the devil's tool because if we can get our sights off of prophecy and what is going to happen, we're going to be focused on what's right in front of us right now. And we're going to be thinking about what I get in this life now and to make life happy now. And that's not what we're here for. You're the called with an eternal purpose. And he says, don't forget, Christ is coming back. Well, a final and third point out of Jude that I want to share with you today is in the final two verses, verses 24 and 25. Now to him who was able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of His glory, blameless with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, and now and forevermore. Here is a challenge to rejoice in your God. Rejoice in Him. And it says here He has the dominion and the glory And then he says he is able. This is a great word. Notice what he says here. To him who is able. Now the word able doesn't mean, well, like you and I, do I have a skill to do this? And do I have, I can't do that. Maybe God just has certain skills. No, that isn't what that is. The word comes from dunamis, which we get the word dynamite from, right? And dunamis has this thought of a prevailing power and ability. God has that. He is the great and mighty creator God. He spoke in those six literal days, all of creation. Woohoo! God is able. Your God is able. You may grow discouraged at times because sometimes we get focused on man and what they do, and man disappoints us. And boy, even as a pastor, there were times I know I let our people down. I'm just a man. Oh, good. But God is not like us. God is able. And Ephesians 3, 20 to 21 reminds us now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly beyond all we ask or think. God is able. I was reminded, our family was reminded of this many, many, well, back in 2010, well, I've got to back up beyond that, and I'll just give you a little background. My son, Caleb, and I, you know, he bought a 1965 Ford Falcon. Classic old car. Didn't run. It looked like garbage. He got it for $500. We towed it home. That's a whole other story, but we got it home. <laughs> Pulled it in the garage for the next two years. My son and I rebuilt this car. Pulled out the engine. We rebuilt the transmission. We rebuilt the engine. All of that stuff. We sanded it down, and he got to drive it. And it was really a wonder to see how we took this rusty bucket of bolts and turned it into a nice little car. So in 2010, my son, our son, goes into the Marines. And so while he's gone at boot camp, I decide I'm going to finish the car up. So I take the seats out and reupholster the seats. And the night before, we're going to drive down to San Diego to wa- for his graduation from boot camp. 
and putting the seats in and the old seat belts. And, you know, they, they bolt into the floor and it was really late at night and we're leaving early in the morning to drive to San Diego from Olympia there. And I keep trying to get this bolt started. Now, this is important. And you think, silly. No, I can't get the bolt going. It's, the carpet's hanging it up and I, I just kind of dropped it in the, the uh, bracket from the seat belt. I sat there, I said, you know, and Carolyn was there, and I said, I'm just going to tell Caleb before he drives the car, because he's going to fly home right after boot camp, we're going to drive home, tell him that he has to uh, put that seatbelt in before he drives. Okay, so we drive down. We're down at San Diego, and uh, right, right before he gets on the plane, he says, oh, when you get home, make sure you bolt in the seatbelts before you drive your car, because he doesn't know that I've done the, re- the reupholstery job or anything. So he says, okay, Dad. So... We're driving, mm, I guess we're in Northern California. I get this phone call from my son. Dad, I can't believe what you do to the car. Woo, yeah, yeah. You know, Dad is great. Woo, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's about an hour later or so. I get another call. And he says, Dad, it's totaled. And I go, oh, man, I drove park off the side of the road. I said, are you okay? He goes, Yeah. And he was just climbing out of the car. And what had happened, in brief, driving down I-5, and he lost steering. And the car went off to the side and endowed three times and twisted up and ended up on the other side of the freeway. And he walked out of that car, walked away. Oh, so we get home. I look at the car, and it's just this twisted wreck. But right over the driver's seat, the roof isn't crushed. And not only that, I, I looked in the back and I said, oh, I said, you were wearing your seatbelt. He goes, oh, yeah. He says, I'm glad you bolted that baby in. He goes, what? I didn't bolt that in. I said, whoa, wait a minute. And I reached in the back, and I kid you not, three twists before I could pull that bolt out of the floor. He goes, I thought you meant the seatbelts in the back seat. And no one was riding with me, so my son, I looked at, he had a little scratch on his head, and I looked at that. I just started to cry because somehow that seatbelt got belted in, and he wore the seatbelt, and it kept him from being propelled out of that car and crushing it. You know, folks, now he didn't cry. He's this Marine all of a sudden. Whoa, yeah, I'm tough. (laughs) But I'm crying because I believe God protected him. Our God is able not only to save us in those physical circumstances, but in those times of relationships and heartache and feeling abandoned and the battle is real and the war is real. Oh, our God is able to keep you from falling because you are loved, you are called, you are kept. Oh, beloved, dear church, you belong to him. You as the church You've been bought and paid for, and you are secure for eternity. May I encourage you to keep your sights on eternity as you wait anxiously for Christ, as you wait for his return, and live here in the meantime, keeping your sights on him, but remembering your DNA. You're called. You're beloved. You are kept. Father, I thank you for your word I thank you for the encouragement that we have 
in this life to walk with you, to walk faithfully with you, because you're able to keep us from falling. You are the one who is able to keep us and protect us because you love us, because you've called us. You have chosen us. Oh, God, I thank you that we are the objects of your love, not because of anything that we have ever done or what we deserve. And may we encourage each other. May we build one another up in this great faith as we walk with you day by day. In Christ's name, amen.